the hold of the insanity of what I call the old story of what the world is, what's real and who I am. The hold of that is so strong that without some dramatic intervention, most people carry that to their dying day or their dying weeks. Um, to loosen that hold, it does take either the imminence of death, which clears away, you know, what is true and what is false, what is real and what is permanent and unreal and impermanent, right? That death is the ultimate medicine. But usually when you are close to death, you're not gonna actually be out in the world doing very much unless you have a near-death experience, you know, or something like that, okay? So um, death, the, the, the invasion of the consciousness of death into life is one of the, maybe the most powerful psychedelic medicine. Tires Creative Friends, the super awesome podcast show where me, your hardest friend Chris Dyer, interviews his wonderful, interesting friends. Today, my guest is Charles Eisenstein. You call me Fringe? Fr friend. Friend. Oh, I thought you said Fringe. I made a Fringe. I pronounce my words terribly, but you are pretty fringy, so it works out. Um, Charles is a writer of books and essays, a philosopher, a generally really smart, intelligent human being where I could ask him so many questions and he had very great um, answers. Uh, we actually spoke a year, uh, April of 2020, which was like a month after COVID had started. So a lot of my questions back then were about COVID and the situation of the world. And I, I'll get that to that topic later, but first I wanted to like, have a general um, philosophical question for you is what's up with the insanity of the world and how do we stop it? Yeah, welcome to Planet Crazy, huh? <laughs> right? Yeah, either that or maybe you and I are insane and, and the world is totally fine. That sounds more logical, really, but... <laughs> right, I mean, who are we to disagree with everybody, right? Let's pretend that, you know, we are the sane ones and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> Else does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this has been my journey for the last year um, where I, I asked the question, like, who am I to disagree so fundamentally with what seems to be like a maybe not unanimous, but an overwhelming majority of people who basically, when it comes right down to it, think that safety is more important than being fully human with each other. Mm -hmm. Like... Like, I don't, I don't, okay, maybe I do doubt, but I'm willing to grant that lockdowns, never seeing each other's faces, never singing together, not having a festival, not hugging, not being together, not seeing, like, I'm willing to grant maybe that is saving some lives, although actually there's no such thing as saving a life. There's only postponing death. 
but I'm willing to grant that. But my question is, like, is that any way to live? And I think that I'm just like, what I came to is it is insane to worship at the altar of safety and, you know, live in a bubble. And, and, and then like someone says, well, okay, Charles, but it's not just you, you know, it's, you know, grannies that you're killing by your, by your, you know, narcissistic desire for freedom. And I'm like, okay. Um, I, I, I like to quote one of my friends who, who Lauren Buckley, she, she says, if the only way you can save your life was to decree that no one ever hug again, would you do it? Mm -hmm. Well, like most people would say no. Well, collectively, we're making that decision. And I think it's crazy. And yeah. Right. I, I, I read this point of view from that essay that you wrote last year that our friend Rich, who has invited us here to Tennessee to hang out together. Um, and in that essay, you, you said like, you know, like at one point humanity is going to have to sit down and be like, all right, what's more important? Uh, you know, the security that you speak about this avoiding death as if death was necessarily a bad thing. Of course, in the world of the living, we want to continue living um, or having a quality of life, you know, what's more important. And I don't understand why that's an insane thought to say like, hey, can, can I risk that 99 point something to go out there and live a full life instead of hiding from yeah. death? That's something yeah. that will come to all of us. Yeah. I mean, I thought about that, like where that obsession with safety comes from. And I think there's two things. One is um, if you've lost touch with the purpose of life, then what is there for you to do but to survive? You know, if there's not something you're so committed to that you're willing to put it all on the line, if there's not something that is feeding your sense of purpose. Like the answer is the question, why am I here? And there's no answer for you. Why am I here? What else is left but just to be here? So that's one thing, and that's related to the, to the disintegration of our cultural mythology of meaning. Like what is a life for? Why are we here? What's humanity for? Like that's breaking down. And then another part of it is the, um, the, the, and I think this is another kind of insanity, the delusion that what you are is a separate being that is annihilated with death. Right. And, and you know, that you're the separate self. So if that, if you take that for granted, then death is the ultimate catastrophe. Right. There's nothing more important than staying alive. And, and I think that our culture has, you know, with the loss of religion, with the, the loss of an understanding of ourselves as part of a much bigger intelligence, the delusion of separation has gotten so strong that we've like geared an entire civilization around risk minimization, security, control, like all. And so everything we're seeing today is just security, control, risk aversion, safety. It's just being taken to its ultimate expression. And we're being asked, are you okay with that? Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, last year when we were, speaking about this topic um we that you were looking at things from an objective point of view 
where there's the mainstream narrative and then there's what's called conspiracy theories. Um, and you're trying to like not go down any road too strongly. Um, and you were also, you know, looking at COVID as a chance for change since we we're all like locked down in, in that period that we spoke. Do you think that we've changed at all in this year since all of these things have happened? And where do you sit in the spectrum of what's the reality of this whole COVID world and the reaction to it? Well, that, those are some big questions. Yeah, sorry I bunched um, them together. Yeah. <laughs> I'm intimidated to talk to you, man. Yeah. <laughs> but bear with me. Um, yeah, why would anyone be intimidated, intimidated to talk to me? Like, I still, I don't know. Like, I've been doing various kinds of medicine work and, and deep inquiry, you know, and discovering, like, my intimidation, like, my fear of being judged and... I guess I'm intimidated because your kind of intelligence is a different kind of intelligence than mine. Mine is more artistic, how I lay down the colors and shapes and express myself in certain ways while you're like super like, like you're more in like the brain and speak so well and stuff like that. Yeah. And you're being interviewed by great people like Oprah Winfrey and and Uh like everybody respects him so much. So like, I'm just like a, you know, stoner skater kid trying to, you know, uh, yeah, I uh, uh, try. <laughs> so one one of the changes that's happening, and I'll get to your questions, but one of the changes that's happening is that our understanding of who is important and who isn't has got to change, because you know, like you mentioned, Oprah. Okay, I've got nothing against Oprah. You know, I think she's an admirable person, and you know, she's complicated. She's got her flaws. She's got her strengths, just like everybody else. And and but but generally speaking, in our age, um, certain kinds of intelligence, certain capacities, certain abilities are amplified and celebrated and rewarded and others are not. True. So, so if you have capacities and talents that are not rewarded by the system, you're being told in a hundred ways that you're not important. If you were important, you know, you'd have a, you know, 20,000 square foot mansion and you'd be, you know, flying around the world in first class and your private jet and like, right. So like so many ways you're being told you're not important and, and you're actually, you know, I mean, you are somewhat celebrated, right? You're like a pretty well-known artist. I mean, what about people, what about the person who's, you know, working at a daycare and pouring her love into those babies, right? Like she's going to think she's not important. Well, guess what? She's more important than the people we typically celebrate right like there is there is a witness in this world that recognizes everybody's gifts so and you know like i just want to say like that part of you that is like oh you know i'm just a stoner skater guy guy like that part of you is lying to you you know right it's the illusion of the world that i fall for sometimes yeah um but yeah, I agree with you. And I've always tried to celebrate like the janitor or the garbage yeah. man. That is such an important function in our society. If they're doing it with love, I mean, they're not necessarily, you know, having a positive impact on the future. But although to the to some extent, I think anybody just by living their lives is 
fulfilling part of our collective plan. Like every role has to be played, every story has to be told, every life has to be lived. And, if, and in that process, we learn to do it with more attention, more care, more love, then we're creating a future that will carry forth those sentiments, will carry forth the, the care, the love. And you know, it may not be obvious how it's gonna change the world, but it will. So I just, yeah, I, I like to put that in there, like, because, you know, I'm not being like modest here when I say I'm not more important than anybody else. It's just true, you know? It's, and that truth is obvious when we don't look at the world through the lens of control. Because the people we think are powerful, why do we think they're powerful? Because you're, usually because they have a lot of money or a lot of force at their disposal. They can make people do things, so they're powerful. But that's not actually how the world works. The world, there's a bigger intelligence that doesn't depend on, you know, how much control you have. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Beautiful, I love that. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're just two human beings here. Hell yeah. Yeah, all right. Woo! All right, so, so. we were on those COVID questions. The thing is like, Yep. I was trying to get into some wisdom question about like the madness of humanity and how we heal it. And then you got into the COVID topics. I was like, well, I'm going to have to go to my last question. And then it bunched up in my brain. I was like, oh no, which question next? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's, let's keep on talking about those questions that I had. So I'll do it one by one. Yeah. Um, this COVID gives a chance for change. You know, there's a new opportunity. You think in this year since that whole situation started, have we made changes to observe ourselves and see where we can improve as a humanity in general? Or has it been taken in some weird direction where humanity has been controlled even more into some kind of lie about who we are and what our true reality is about? Yes. The second one. Both. Both. All right. Yeah. yeah. Please expand. Well, a lot of people under the surface, uh, it's not visible in, on the external very much right now. Uh, but a lot of people are going through a life crisis, um, having been temporarily delivered from their habits. You know, like like people got a timeout. You know, people got their routines disrupted, and many people, their lives stopped working. So there's been a lot of um, evolution um, and transformation under the surface. Outwardly, like the systems of control and domination on this earth have reached even farther than ever before. The surveillance, the censorship, the control of people's, um, uh, you know, movements, um, the, the reach of medical authority in our lives, like all of those things are, are more than ever. Right. Um, why, why, why is that? Like, you think they're freaking out and just really trying to put us on a stronger cage because we are actually, like, w starting to wake up? Yeah, I, I don't see it in terms of a they, like a group of, of, of human beings who are bent on enslaving the world. Right. It's in the nature of the paradigm of control to want more of it. Because, because you know, imagine that you are you know, someone with a lot of, of power. Uh, you're in a position of authority, you're in government, you're, you know, you're Bill Gates, you're somebody like that. 
and you're like, okay, progress means that we control matter and human beings more and more precisely for the greater good. Like air conditioning, you know, we used to be sweltering hot in the summer and freezing in the winter, but then we developed technology, climate control. We have climate control dwellings, and now we're comfortable all the time. Uh, we used to suffer from fevers and and illnesses, and now we can control the body, maybe not perfectly yet, yet, but someday we'll be able to control it precisely, and there will be no more physical suffering. And if we could only keep track of everybody all the time and surveil everybody all the time and have predictive implants that predict when they're about to commit a crime, well, we'd eliminate all crime. So this, the, like, of, of course you want that, right? So of course, the more power and control that I have, the better. Don't you understand? It's for your own good. And, and so part of this is, and when it doesn't work, that's because you don't have enough of it. That's because our data set is not complete yet. We need to have an internet of things and an internet of people to gather more data. And then finally, we will reach this paradise of perfect control. That's an ideology that has been with us for hundreds of years, actually. That we're making the world better and better and better. Life is getting better and better and better. And until you go to like, you know, a remote village in Peru or Pakistan or somewhere like that, where, where despite objective poverty, you actually see happy people. Until you've done that, it's hard to, to doubt that ideology. Well, the people who are at, in, in influential positions in our institutions, they are fully immersed in that ideology. So, of course, they want more power without having to be evil. Right. So yeah. they think they got a good intention. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious, you know, like we got to, I mean, if only we could contact traits, everybody, we could stop COVID. Right. But then we end up in the movie Minority Report. And yeah, I'm not a big fan of Tom Cruise. So well, that's, right. that's a grim future. Um, but you were talking about that you don't believe in like cabalists of negative people getting together and planning out the world in a negative way. So to my other question, there's the mainstream narrative about like what's going on. And then there's the conspiracy theories about what's going on in the, in the shadows or whatever. Yeah. Where do you lie in that whole spectrum? Yeah. I mean, I think that conspiracies do happen. Um, I don't think that the primary explanation for the way the world is today is, you know, an evil conspiracy going back thousands of years. Even if there is one, though, we have to ask, what are the psychic conditions that enable them to maintain their power? Like, why are we so willing to believe lies? Because whether they are deliberate lies concocted by conspirators or they are organic lies generated by the system out of an ideology, either way, we are, as I was saying before, in, in crazy times. We, people are believing things that contradict their common sense and contradict their lived experience. So that, that's, that's, so the, for me, the question like, of, of rooting out the conspiracy is a little bit of a distraction. Because even if you root it out, and maybe it already has been rooted out, you know, maybe you, you, you watch David Icke or somebody and they're like, yeah, here it is. You know, what if they're right? Well, 
has how, how much of an effect has it had? You know, is someone going to look at that and say, oh, yep, that proves it. Most people aren't even going to look at it or they're going to dismiss it at first glance. And it's not like, you know, that's rather an extreme case, but um, just looking at stuff about, I mean, I don't know if you want me to bring up COVID again, but, you know, um, the scientific justification for a lot of what's happening is really, really shaky, you know, for, I mean, masking, like, I mean, the data on that is, I mean, the CDC just, just even came out with something, oh, actually, it's mostly aerosolized particles and not droplets that transmit COVID. Therefore, they don't say it, but therefore, masks are not very helpful. Right. And then there's empirical studies that, that show that, too. And then there's other ones, you know, oh, yeah, well, what about this study? So you can get into the, the dance of the dueling studies. And that's like, but why isn't there like ever like a TV discussion between both sides so we can all like listen to it and see where we what we believe? Well, the media atmosphere is hostile to any questioning of orthodoxy. So if you brought up that idea uh, or brought up any dissenting viewpoint, um, you know, at the very best, you'll get subjected to intense scrutiny and hostility and probably, you know, I mean, your producer, your editor is not going to want to deal with that. He's going to say, uh, let's keep that one quiet. So, or, or suppose you're a researcher. Suppose you wanted to, to run a study on vaccine damage, like a really large scale, therefore expensive study. Well, how are studies funded? Who's going to fund that? And, and who's going to want to be on that study? Because if you're on that, then your career gets destroyed. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's two points I want to touch there. Um, and I hope I'm not bunching up questions once again. But uh, earlier we were talking about like science and how like, you know, science is being put on a pedestal. But science is a thing where there's lots of theories and truth is hard to find in that. Actually, just tell me what's your thought about this um, science and how it's being used to push a certain paradigm or truth. You, know, you have to understand simply that science is not an independent institution. It's not independent from financial power and political power right now. It's an appendage of those. Individual scientists are, in most cases, I think, you know, intelligent, um, scrupulous human beings. But the system that they work in is aligned with certain results and hostile to other results. There's on, I host an online community and someone was posting about her mother who just quit her job at one of the major pharmaceutical companies. And the reason she quit is because she was being constantly asked to falsify data. Mm. And, and she just couldn't take it anymore. Like, and it wasn't like some aberration, you know, it was routine. And in this case, you know, they collected a bunch of data sets one of which showed that their medicine worked. The others did not show that. So guess what? They only publish the one that shows it. Right. I mean, it could be outright corruption. You know, it could be like, like, it's kind of human nature. You know, people believe the things that are convenient for them to believe that make themselves feel good, that confirm what they think they know about the world. So, you know, like you could say, like, 
suppose you're the supervisor for that ex for that experiment and you're like are you sure that data set is right that one you know like are you sure you know the test tubes weren't dirty that day you know better better cast that one out you know like mm -hmm. and maybe you kind of go along with it you know there's all these reasons yeah i could see it that way um right yeah so, and the people who are more likely to do that their job performance is higher so so their maybe their supervisor is going to promote them without even knowing the details so it's like like there's an organic system if you're in the media the same thing like certain opinions you know are going to get you promoted and get you funded you know and and get you a get you um connected to power brokers, you know, and other opinions, you're going to have to fight and fight and fight to, to even keep your job. Right. Totally. Yeah. I agree. So the next question is the difficult one that I asked you last time. And you said that if you answered it, you'd alienate either 50% of your followers. Are you down with the vaccine or not? What's it, What's your opinion? With? Are you getting it? Like, are you not like, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not getting the vaccine. Um, I have good reason to think that it's much more dangerous than we've been told. And I don't know for sure that it's as dangerous as some people are saying. Um, and I don't think that anyone knows for sure what the long-term effects will be because there hasn't been a long-term yet. I'm seeing a lot of worrisome stuff. Uh, like I, I saw a, uh, uh, a Instagram um, archive. Someone archived their Instagram account because they got deleted. But in this archive, there were thousands of women describing their their um, menstrual problems and miscarriages and stuff like that after getting getting vaccinated. And these are people who got vaccinated. Okay, these are people who like believed enough in it that. You know, they thought it was going to be fine. And a lot of them were like, you know, I had no idea. It's not like they were like programmed and it's the nocebo effect, you know, and they think that they're going to mm -hmm. that they're going to have a problem. And then, you know, and then like one of them was like, yeah. And then I went to my doctor and he said, um, you know, are you up to date on your on your antidepressants? And she's like, why? She's like, well. You know, anxious people, your anti-anxiety medication, anxious people tend to exaggerate symptoms. And she's like, you know, I just had a period that lasted three weeks and I've never had that before. You're telling me that that's, that's in my mind that I'm exaggerating, symptom, exaggerating symptoms. And, and this is part of the, like the uh, gaslighting that's going on, where people are experiencing things directly and then being told, well, that's unscientific, that's coincidence, you know, that's not the vaccine. And, and I think that given the control of the information environment, I mean, if you post, I mean, like this video could get deleted uh, simply because like we're talking about it in a way that doesn't conform to the correct view. Right. So, well, hopefully I'm under the radar enough. Right. So, so in the current information environment, this is the important point. You cannot know if the vaccine damage is much more than we're being told. You, there is no way to know it. If it's true, how would you know it when there's so much suppression of information? Right. So that doesn't prove that it's happening, but it is clear that if it is happening, we will not easily know about it. 
Right. And the only way we will know about it is if the damage is so severe and so widespread that eventually it overcomes these ways of controlling information. Do you believe all of us could be abundant? So I'm, I'm tapping into sacred economics. Um, can we yep. all be abundant and how do we reach that? Abundance comes through belonging and through sharing. And, you know, we imagine that security and, and wealth is associated with this separate self rather than, than what you've given, what you've let go of, you know, what you've put into the world, what you've imprinted onto the world through devotion. Devotion is also in the spirit of gift because you are pouring your life energy, your creativity into the world. Right. So abundance is like the abundance of oneness of all of us together, right? So Imagine if everybody's doing that. Everybody is devoted to to everybody. And so people are devoted to you, too. Mm -hmm. Like, imagine how wealthy you would be if, like, you're an artist, right? Like, I can imagine, like, your ideal, imagine a world with no money where, where you're just so appreciated for what you do and you're just going and making places beautiful. And, and everybody else wants to make your life beautiful, too cooking you beautiful meals, growing you beautiful food, building you beautiful houses, you know, loving you up in every way. Yeah. Like you don't need a lot of money then. Why would you want to accumulate when it's all freely available? Right. Like that's the world we could be living in. Do you think it's possible? Yeah, I know it's possible. It's the past and it's the future. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is, I mean, hunter-gatherer societies lived in many respects, and I'm not saying they were perfect, but that is a state of being that is familiar to us on a deep level. And it is, we don't haven't figured out how to do that on a mass scale, but that is the, that is one of the core um, goals of the collective of humanity right now. That's like the next stage of our, this is, this is the problem that we are, trying to work out over the last few thousand years. Um, how to become hunter-gatherers? How to No, it's how to bring the spirit of the gift into a modern context. Right. So it's not about reversing technology, mm -hmm. but what would technology look like if it were in the spirit of the gift? Right, beautiful. Yeah. Do you think uh, cryptocurrency is a tool that can help humanity get on some kind of more level plane or... I don't want to say good people and bad people. Uh, those who are ready to share uh, can uh, pass a little bit more of that vibe out because maybe it's not like the people who had the power for a longer period of time. Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, we can look at the way that the crypto movement has played out. Uh, I don't see a whole lot of sharing in the crypto world. I see a lot of greed, a lot of speculation, a lot of accumulation. Um, a new class of people have been enriched by it. Although a lot of the old rich are also getting even richer with cryptocurrency. So it is not like a magic bullet, but I think it does suggest, um, it, it, well, one thing it, it, it has signaled to the collective consciousness that money is, um, it's not something just written in stone. It can be, it's created by human beings. Mm -hmm. our, our 
default currency system is created by human beings. It's a, it's a web of agreements and sales. It's faith that this has value. That's right. It's an agreement that it has value. Um, it's not usually a conscious volitional agreement, but it is an agreement. Like it, these dollars, you know, these pesos, these euros, they only have value because everyone thinks they have value. So cryptocurrencies are making that more obvious. And, and so, but for me, the question of, 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 of economics, what I call it sacred economics, is what agreement could we make that constitutes money that would align it with what is sacred to us, such as ecological wholeness and, and, and social healing mm-hmm. and, and justice. And like, because money seems to be the, op, the, the, the opponent of those things today, but it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. So what would those agreements look like? You know, that's, 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 I'm not going to try to answer that question now because that takes, you know, many hours, but, um, to even own that possibility that money could look totally different under a different set of agreements that could involve some of the technologies that have been developed in cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. And what's the role of philanthropy in all of this? Because I know it seems like sometimes philanthropy seems like a very nice thing, but then some people use it for weird reasons. I know you yourself got philanthropic movements. Uh, you, right? Like you collaborate with that? Oh, I mean, I sometimes I, I speak to philanthropists or groups of philanthropists. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit in that world. Um, What's its role in going towards this world that's more of a sharing vibration? I mean, there's a lot of ways that philanthropy is kind of part of the old story, you know, and that established channels of philanthropy um, are, are they, they, they go to things that, that don't seriously challenge the way that things are. They make, maybe they soften some of the hard edges. Uh, you know, they, they can, like, if you have a system where there's going to be the oppressors and the oppressed, the exploiters and the exploited, then philanthropy can make the lot of the exploited a little bit easier, even if the wealth originally came from exploiting them. Right. You know, like, mm. but still, you know, you, you can turn it to poverty relief instead of buying another yacht. And, you know, that's done some good. And so a lot of philanthropy is that. And then there are, um, more um, edgy philanthropists. I mean, some philanthropy actually does ill in the world. Uh, that that's you know imposing a model of development on people. That's that's really very arrogant. It's kind of the white man's burden mentality. Uh, I, I won't. I, could, I was thinking I should give examples of that, but maybe that's a little too far down the rabbit hole. But, but then, you know, then some people, they've had um, some kind of awakening and they want to use philanthropy to, to help create a totally different system and to, to express their, maybe like they have an, an, uh, an experience that shows them the unity of humans and nature uh, or the livingness of Gaia, that the planet is alive. And okay, what do I do with that knowledge? 
And how do I align money with that knowledge? It's not so easy. What are you going to do? Are you going to, like, like, I mean, there, there, you could pour billions of dollars into maybe like climate change um, organizations. But, you know, when you, when you look at that, a lot of what's happening in the name of stopping climate change is actually causing a lot of ecological harm. You know, these, these the, the batteries, the lithium batteries, you know, the, the cobalt, the copper, the silver, the rare earth minerals that are being mined, um, the, the, the waste, you know, the, the wind turbines that are killing birds, you know, the solar panels, the vast fields of solar panels. Like there's a lot of, a lot of stuff, the, the biofuels plantations, the hydro dams, you know, like, I mean, you go into like the world of carbon, carbon accounting, and it, the, the, the more you look at it, the less inspiring it is. So you're like, okay, well, what am I going to do with my money? You know, like, am I going to buy tracts of rainforest? Well, is that going to stop just because I own the deed? Does that stop log poachers from going in? You know, does that like, what am I? So, so, the, so when people have these awakenings, this isn't just in philanthropy, but they have these awakenings. And then the question of how to put that knowledge into action is not a trivial question. You can't just like throw money at something, right. but it has to become like, you know, a Dharma, like a lifelong building of those relationships and learning how to use money as a tool for artistic creation basically, how to, how to use that in a way that helps the world. I cannot offer a formula for that. Right. Yeah. I, I was, I was thinking like, should I ask him like, so what do we do with this money? But it's like, it's, it's too big of a question for one man. I guess it's for all of us to come together and try to. Cause the answer is there's a million answers, you know, it depends on where you are and what relationships you have. So it might be to, to, you know, regenerate soil and help farmers in a certain area transition to regenerative agriculture. It might be on a more political level to establish marine reserves. Like that's you know, like some things that I'm not saying just work on the local level because there are things that require global agreement. Like half the world's oceans should be put in no fishing zones, like absolute marine preserves. And the oceans would heal in 10 years, like to, to an extent that you would not believe how many fish there would be. Like that, so that's like something that needs to happen on a global political level. And there's also... And so, and some people are, have those, those skills, have that influence or in those circles and maybe could do that work and, and their money could help, help that. And then others are maybe in relationship to, you know, the headwaters of the Amazon or to the soils of the Midwest uh, or to the waters of California, you know, and have a very local relationship. And, and really what it comes down to is that it's all about relationships. Mm -hmm. The money alone will not solve any problems. Mm -hmm. But do you feel there's enough people and maybe some of these with the power and money to have hope that things can change for the positive for humanity? Is there enough momentum happening? Uh, I mean, I would say yes, but that kind of question, it kind of, um, like I noticed the part of me that wants to know, okay, is it gonna be okay outside of myself? Like, is the world, you know, in good enough hands that everything will be fine or are we doomed? 
that question assumes that my choices, like what if it's at a tipping point and it could go either way? And the answer to that question depends on my contribution and your contribution. And the same is true of everybody. That's the paradox. Right. So it's not like this question. It can be like a surrender of your, of your true power. I think what's true is that we are at a, a crucial moment, a crossroads. And that, that the answer to the question depends on you. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I love always going back to individual. What is your opinion about psychedelics as part of this transmutation of humanity into us becoming more giving and doing these changes to tip it to the positive side? Yeah. Uh, psychedelics are, are referred to as medicines for good reason. Um, I, I, I think that the hold of the insanity of what I call the old story of what the world is, what's real and who I am, the hold of that is so strong that without some dramatic intervention, most people carry that to their dying day or their dying weeks. Um, to loosen that hold, it does take either the imminence of death, which clears away, you know, what is true and what is false, what is real and what is permanent and unreal and impermanent, right? That death is the ultimate medicine. But usually when you are close to death, you're not going to actually be out in the world doing very much unless you have a near-death experience, you know, or something like that, okay? So um, death, the, the, the invasion of the consciousness of death into life is one of the, maybe the most powerful psychedelic medicine. And what we call psychedelic medicines are another one that can loosen the, the grip of the false reality that we are in. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any hope for the planet without them. Right. But it doesn't mean everybody needs to take one. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people, for a lot of people, there's no other way out. Um, you know, because not everybody's going to have a near-death experience or, you know, a miraculous healing. I mean, you know, the, the, there are other ways that the um, guardians of this earth intervene in human affairs. But psychedelics are one of the main ways. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm personally very grateful. How has that helped you? When I was 22, yeah, 22. Yeah, I had a very, very, very powerful LSD experience that, um, you know, it just confirmed to me that I wasn't crazy, that that reality is so much bigger and, and mind so much bigger and, and more mysterious than the tidy, the neat, tidy scheme that had been laid out for me studying mathematics and philosophy and science, you know, like, like it said, here's what's real. Here's what knowledge is. Uh, here's how to distinguish truth from falsity, you know, performing experiments, 
reasoning from first principles, et cetera, et cetera. Like I had this whole, this whole construct that was revealed in that experience to be like this big compared to the vastness of the mystery. Mm-hmm. And, and that experience, that psychedelic journey, you know, my, my, my takeaway, like the feeling I had after that was, was like, I knew it. I knew it. I wasn't crazy mm-hmm. after all. Now, our culture would say that it made me crazy. Because insanity, I mean, you could almost define insanity as um, a deviation from consensus reality. Mm-hmm. Like if, if, if I'm hearing voices and no one else is hearing them, like that's insane, right? So, so there's a little bit of a, of a paradox, or maybe I would call it an irony here, mm-hmm. that sanity requ- will look like insanity. Right. Um, but yeah, so that, that, ex- that, that confirmation that I wasn't, <laughs> that my secret suspicion was true, um, that was revolutionary. And then it also birthed in me the necessity to somehow live according to what I had seen. Right. And the gap between how I had been living and what I had seen was so huge. And, and even the gap between any career path any way of living and what I had seen was so huge that, you know, it's not like I all of a sudden let go fully into that, but it planted a seed in me that has been sprouting in different ways my whole life. So beautiful, man. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, We're coming to the end of our show. Would you have some final words of wisdom for our, our viewers? Words of wisdom, huh? Well, everything you say is um, wise, so. <laughs> if you were like the leader of planet Earth right now, and you had a few last sentences to tell you before you depart back into heaven, what would you tell the humans of planet Earth? Uh, I don't know if I would say this to every human all the time, but <clears throat> just to touch back on the uh, <laughs> the, the idea that we live in crazy times um, where, you know, like the mainstream media says one thing and then, you know, this conspiracy group says one thing and then that one says one thing and, and, you know, maybe you jump from one to another to another and what do you, how do you know what's true? And you start to think, um, I cannot figure it out by the evidence that's how i feel right now <laughs> like do i believe this one or that one you know and in such times you have to you have to settle into a deeper source of truth uh-huh. that doesn't depend on what set of opinions and evidence you pick and i guess the way i do it when i you know, feel into a certain conspiracy theory or a certain just alternative theory. Um, I sense into how does this information make me feel and who do I become living in that story? Mm-hmm. That's very important. Is it me? Is this me? Like that is a 
That is a basic navigational system. Who do I have to become to really take this reality on? Mm. Is that who I want to become? That is, that is a primal form of sovereignty, the seat of the soul, I call that, that, that we need to reclaim right now to hold our sanity. Right. So yeah. if, as you're saying, truth is hard to find in this crazy world with a million theories, it's almost like all we got left is perception and instinct. Truth is easy to find. It's always right there. But the way that we are taught to find it is not going to help us find it. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. Well, thank you so much. Those are some great words of wisdom. <laughs> thank you so much, Thanks, Charles. Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. Well, thank you so much to you guys for, uh, you know, watching this lovely conversation. Please don't forget to press like and subscribe and comment and all that boring stuff. I'll see you next episode. Blessings. Woo. You're going deeper, that's why I focus on art and consciousness. Why I put those words together, art and consciousness or art consciousness, what I think it is is in times like now, the artist is so much more important. It's so much more important because the artist can go through a dark night of the soul and draw all the beauty out of it. Like I'll show you what hell looks like when, when you draw all the beauty out of it and you can see like, oh man, they're, you can never completely destroy the light, the beauty. It's always there. And a lot of the times it's just your perception. So that's why I really wanted to connect with you and film you as an artist. It's your life. You know, you go through these difficult times. What do you do afterwards? How do you process it? How do you integrate that in your life? Right. Like, how do you? So make sure to subscribe, like, and everything else. Big thanks and see you next week. Peace.